Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Bridger and I are excited to invite you to so listen <laughs> to a beautiful conversation that we got to have with the one and only Bruce Ecker, who is one of the authors and, um, yeah, I, I would say advocates of um, memory reconsolidation and coherence therapy, formerly, what was it? It used to be called something else. Deep oriented brief psychotherapy. There we go. I understand why they changed the name. Psychotherapy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now called coherence therapy. Yeah. Um, Bit of a bit of a mouthful. The first one. It really is. I wish we would just you know (laughs) fix EMDR and call it something you know more tangible. But maybe reprocessing uh, therapy. I don't know. Maybe. But we got to talk to Bruce about memory reconsolidation particularly its application to EMDR. So I'm so excited for all of you guys to get to hear us um, learn from one of the masters. <laughs> yes. That's how it kind of felt to me. I don't know how you felt, Bridger, but I was quite awestruck during this conversation. Yeah, well, and listening into the episode, you all will hear, um, I, I think it'll come through the audio of Melissa and I like just like it's almost like vibrating with yes. Yes. <laughs> disbelief like and each joy. other about how excited we were and trying to contain ourselves and be very composed and professional while um, like, yeah, squeeing. One inside. of the heroes oh. are yeah talking. <laughs> um, so yes, I'm very excited for y'all to listen to the episode. Um, and the way that we'll uh, kind of intro this episode is the same that we've done kind of here on the podcast lately. We'll come back at the end. Um, to talk with you all uh, just a little bit and also maybe foreshadow some uh, things coming up on the horizon of the podcast and uh, what's going on with Beyond Healing Institute. So please stay tuned after. Okay. So before we let them listen, I want to tell them why we wanted to talk to Bruce. Oh, excellent. Specifically in regards to EMDR. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're in the middle of the back to basics series. And one of the things that has struck me for quite a while, but then particularly in reading the text again, um, is that EMDR really hasn't had a thorough update in terms of where the science and the research is now, um, neurobiologically speaking. And there is a ton of research that has been done in the intervening decades. (laughs) And it just seems like it's time. Uh, Like we need to take a look again And I don't want to say that nobody is doing that because that's not true. Bruce is one of the people that has been doing that. Um, And he has an offering that he shares um, that you guys can listen into and I encourage you to. But there needs to be a pretty robust conversation in the EMDR community about updating our understanding and our protocols 
based on where neuroscience is now. So without further ado, have a listen to us get to learn from Bruce about how he is making sense of the research and inviting us all to update what we do with EMDR based on what we now know about how the brain works a little bit more. Enjoy it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Melissa and I are here in our virtual studio today with a very special guest, and we will, uh, I don't know if we should say it now of who it is. I guess the episode is titled yeah. Bruce Ecker Interview, <laughs> <laughs> Memory Reconsolidation, Everyone so knows people know. <laughs> people know he's here. Um, yes, we're so excited to get into this conversation amidst our season of Back to the Basics in EMDR, and I love that we're including uh, Memory Reconsolidation in its sort of full representation as a basic element of the you know mechanism of change in EMDR. Um, yeah, Melissa, how are you feeling about today? I'm so excited. So I, I thought that it might be helpful for our listeners to kind of come into this interview understanding why Bridger and I are so excited about it. <laughs> um, and so I, I thought that it would be effective to use the question of um, how did encountering the concept and the research around memory reconsolidation impact us as individuals and as clinicians when we first discovered it. Um, and yeah. so, you know, Bridger, if you can answer that and I'll give my answer because I think that it'll help our listeners understand, like, this is why we're so excited and why um, it felt like an essential and basic piece of our mm. understanding of what EMDR is, what it's trying to do and how to be uh, most efficient and effective with it. Mm -hmm. so yeah, I was... I was introduced to memory reconsolidation in my undergrad experience right along Yak Pongsep's work on affective neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And this was for me just the once I had those two puzzle pieces, everything just made so much more sense to me of not only how we learn these different strategies throughout our life and how our autonomic nervous system is automated through the facilitation of those strategies, but also when the concept of memory recall and then any hope of change um, you know, comes into the picture, what must happen? for that change to not just be a, you know, state level change where I, you know, just change my thinking or I change how I feel in this moment, but actually goes deeper into the characterological, you know, the, the deeper root of the change. And so for me, you know, that was way before I encountered EMDR. So I kind of carried that, that kind of braided theoretical framework into my training of EMDR. And then through further reading, I discovered that coherence therapy, which is the kind of therapy of memory reconsolidation, recognizes that EMDR is also uh, a, a therapy that utilizes these change mechanisms. And so for me, it just felt really authentic. And I just, you know, I don't know, it just made sense to include it from the beginning into my EMDR journey years ago. Uh, how about for you, Melissa? Yeah, I... Um... I believe, Bridger, it was you that introduced me to the the articles first on memory consolidation. And I remember um, I was probably listening to it because that's how I consume most research at this point. Um, and there was something that sort of happened as I was, you know, encountering all that information where I stopped and sort of had this moment of realization of, oh, this is answering a question that I've been holding for years as a clinician. Mm. 
um, because I've been trained in EMDR and practicing EMDR for a long time, but there was never a satisfying explanation of what in the world we were doing. <laughs> Why did it work? Why did it sometimes really not work? Um, yeah. and, and I was just so drawn to those questions and, you know, we've made a career and a practice and a, a business out of, um, hunting down answers to those questions and, and trying to share them with other people. I mean, it's, it is by yeah. far my passion. And so when I encountered that information, it was the first time that I felt like, ah, here is the beginning of an answer. And I, I love the way that it was presented because there was a lot of openness around it with this, this sense of, um, we think this is a trail that needs to be followed and this is what we know now and we need to keep going. There's so much more here. Let's not stop. And so it felt incredibly invitational to be curious with, um, you know, the, the mechanism that was being explored and to begin to conceptualize what we were doing in therapy with this piece of the puzzle and it began to shift how I made sense of what I was doing. And it mm. helped me um, answer the, that question that, you know, all of us as clinicians hold of how do I do this more efficiently, right? How do yeah. I um, create an experience for my clients that's going to get to the root of the issue as fast as we can, as safely as we can? And how do we uh, create experiences for our clients that are really going to shift things at a physiological level? Um, and, you know, I'm a somaticist at heart and at this point by research and practice and study. And so uh, the, the answer of MR coming in and beginning to give a paradigm where all of those different pieces of the puzzle that I've been looking at fit in was just like so enrapturing. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> Enchantingly so. And, and I feel like I talk about it all the time. And luckily, you know, Bridger, you and I have each other and some other people in our practice that will get equally enthusiastic about it. And so I really desire that people begin to understand, like, why does this matter so much? Like, why is this really a paradigm shifting discovery? And how do we continue this investigation as a clinical community and as a research community uh, to keep doing what we do even better? So with that yeah. uh, enthusiastic <laughs> answer, Bruce, could we just invite you to introduce yourself and uh, begin to talk about the topic that we both are so excited about? <laughs> uh, thank you. I'll try. After listening to both of you, I'm in a cloud. I'm, I, I, I just I just fell in love with both oh. of you. Oh, <laughs> we're so happy to have you. How am I going to focus up and, and, and share what I've got to share now? It's hard. <laughs> uh, but thank you. Thank you. That, that's wonderful, really. I'm thrilled with what you both just said. Uh, okay, to give a little context about me before we get into the substance. Um Back in the uh, in the early early years of my clinical career and the and and my close clinical colleague Laurel Hoey back then, and this is the mid to late nineteen eighties, right? We're now ancient. Um, we you know we wanted to be as effective as possible as therapists. It really mattered to us. We didn't just want to crank out. The, the methods that we were taught in grad school. So as we began in doing our practices, uh, we were looking in that way. And we noticed after a, a couple of years that, wow, occasionally, very occasionally, a client has a, 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 a remarkable therapeutic breakthrough and some major lifelong pattern of suffering ends, gone and doesn't come back, a truly liberating inner shift. And we didn't know what 
produce that at first. I mean, we could look back over what happened in that session and, you know, speculate. But the fact that it could happen is what struck us so powerfully. So we reoriented our practices to look for what is it that makes that happen when it happens. Like I said, it was quite occasional at first. So across years, we paid very close attention to studying, micro-studying the outer interaction and as much as we could learn of the inner process of the client whenever such transformational shifts happened. And by the early 1990s, we had definitely spotted uh, uh, a pattern that was true across all such clients. Mm. And we def- uh, it, was, it consisted of a sequence of experiences or a set of experiences of a certain kind, not techniques. No particular technique was in common, but the client had certain experiences that was there in every case. So we decided, well, that's what we now do is we aim to create those experiences from the first minutes of the first session and find how to do that. With, with every client, all the different personalities, all the different processing styles, all the different problems and symptoms, how do we head for those, that set of experiences, which I will detail, I think, as we, as we go along here. And so we, call, we initially called that therapy framework, that therapy methodology, depth-oriented brief therapy. And our first book, published in late 1995, was, had that title. Um, And we were very happy going along doing that, presenting it at conferences, and reorienting therapy that way definitely made our work much more effective. The frequency of those breakthrough liberating sessions increased tremendously uh, over time as we got better and better knowing how to facilitate that set of experiences. Well, by the uh, early, let's see, it was about, um, I think it was 2005, that thanks to uh, thanks to the, the, a young a young protege uh, who was working with us, uh, I became interested in neuroscience. Uh, specifically, m- my thought was, what we have found is so definite. This sequence of experiences is so distinct. It's not. I don't see it anywhere in the therapy world described this way. Um. And its result is so distinct. This, 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 you know, the whole therapy world is oriented around partial symptom reduction. Mm-hmm. The whole therapy uh, outcome research field and its vast literature is all about incremental change, partial change, all of the randomized controlled trials um, show that. Uh, uh, all therapy systems, uh, when successful, produce maybe a one standard deviation reduction of the symptoms. And what what the therapy world isn't so aware of is that one standard deviation corresponds to a, 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 a symptom reduction of 20 to 25 percent as a rule. Very mild improvement became the standard of success in the therapy field. And here we are seeing 100% reduction 
of symptoms and distressed states mm -hmm. when this process works. So this seemed important to us. So the, as I was saying, the, the process is so distinct, the result is so distinct, maybe neuroscience research has found something that corresponds to this. It's because it's definitely something that must be happening in the brain as well as in the conscious experiencing. So we began searching through neuroscience literature and did a, a quite extensive search through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of research articles for, for months. And it was, uh, <laughs> I have a short video on our website that describes the, the it's called The Night We Met because uh, <laughs> Laurel and I, Laurel and I were on a vacation uh, in uh, San Luis Obispo visiting Hearst Castle in California on the coast. And I got up, you know, I was, I, I was, I was using the computer in the hotel room to look through, to keep looking through neuroscience articles, right? <laughs> oh, the search was on. And uh, I, I found it. I found it. And it was an article on this thing called memory reconsolidation. This was 2005. It was published in 2004. Pretty fresh. Um, the, the, the memory reconsolidation research field was still very small. Handful of articles had been published since the first major discoveries around 2000. Currently, there's tens of thousands of articles, I think. It exploded. Uh, but I came across this one article. There it was on the screen describing a process that exactly matched the sequence of experiences that we were, that we had discovered in therapy sessions. Remarkable correspondence. So I was thrilled. I just about began levitating. Really, it was a <laughs> memorable, precious moment for me in, in my career. So as of that point, my career really pivoted. And until then, uh, you know, as a co-founder, Laurel and I created Coherence Therapy, initially named Depth-Oriented Grief Therapy. We renamed it in 2005 to Coherence Therapy for various reasons. And um, uh, But... I, I, we stopped feeling that we're in the horse race, the, the, the competitive, you know, all the founders of different therapies competing for attention and credibility yeah. and use me, use me, you know, um, which is a, you know, an unpleasant and tiresome uh, situation in that does really characterize the therapy field is fragmentation. Uh, but as of that discovery of memory reconsolidation as the core I, we really shifted our framework to this much bigger, hmm. inclusive framework uh, where now we use coherence therapy as like a demonstration platform of the process. Hmm. But the, the main message is many therapies actually carry out this process. Any therapy session that begins to show the markers of transformational change, hmm. we can show you that this specific process was fulfilled just previously to the appearance of those markers of transformational change, whatever the methods are. And so our, our um, 2012 book, Unlocking the Emotional Brain, has a chapter that does just that. It looks uh, in chapter six, it looks at uh, previously published case examples of EMDR, and AEDP, and emotion-focused therapy, and interpersonal neurobiology. 
and it and it is a fine-grained close look that shows where the key experiences were created in those sessions producing transformational change. So, uh, Melissa, as you were saying when we began, uh, yes, this is very inclusive, very inviting. Uh, we teach this process to therapists who use any therapy systems to help them learn how to hone and sharpen their use of their preferred methods to create these experiences. And, and that's it. That's, that's the big picture. So if you want, I can start to describe, you know, what those experiences are and, and how it works. Yes, but first yeah, I, I, I have one question. What was the article? Oh, the article was the 2004 article by Argentinian neuroscientists, Pedrera, oh gosh, Pedrera, um, the third one is Maldonado, okay. who was the head of the lab. And the second one, oh, I'm so sorry, I apologize, I forget. And it's called, oh, I can't even remember the title offhand. I always reference it in our, in our articles. Um, it's something like mismatch between what is expected and what actually happens. Yeah. Uh, it induces memory reconsolidation. I have right? this. I have what this article. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, mismatch between what is expected and what actually occurs triggers memory reconsolidation or extinction. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Or extinction. And and getting it, explaining the difference is a whole b- yes. further deep technicality that I, we probably cannot have the luxury of doing. Well, we have in, described in it in a different uh, podcast in our evidence-based therapy podcast. So right. Right. yeah, I Excellent. don't want you to feel like you have to go through that because we oh. went through multiple articles to do it. So <laughs> oh, you're terrific. Really. Uh, I, I really am in love with both of you. So yeah. let's, we let's can hang out as much as you want. Bruce. Like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so, yeah, please, oh, can you can you take that that first step into what is memory reconsolidation mm-hmm. at its core in treating symptoms at the root? You know, that's kind of where even in the depth oriented brief therapy, that's like the subtitle of the book is treating symptoms at the root. And I'd love mm-hmm. to hear kind of what that means to you and why as the therapy has developed and as the framework has developed, it continues to be what is like the driving force behind MR. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, in most generally, let's see how to go, how to go in on this. Um, yeah, let's call it MR so that yeah. we can, yeah, good. That. Save some airtime. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really does. Uh, um, MR in therapy achieves profound unlearning. Hmm. I think that's the, that's the real core piece to understand. And I'll explain how it does that. <clears throat> uh, the most effect, as I was as, uh, indicating earlier, the most effective psychotherapy occurs when a negative core belief or schema or mental model is profoundly unlearned and nullified. So it cannot be retriggered. It's not literally not there anymore. Mm. Um, and then symptoms disappear completely. And, and we call that transformational change. Mm-hmm. Now, whatever techniques are used in therapy sessions to achieve that, under the hood, in the client's brain, MR is the process that carries out that true unlearning that really fully depotentiates 
an existing yes. core belief or schema or mental model. Now, that's a fundamentally different process from the strategy of what we call counteracting, yeah. right? Such as positive thinking to counteract depression or teaching time management skills to counteract procrastination. So counteracting means building up some preferred behavior or state of mind that competes against the problem pattern, but does not eliminate the problem pattern and its roots. So it produces partial degrees of symptom reduction that can and do relapse. Whereas you know, unlearning totally eliminates the very basis of the symptom's existence. And so it's not susceptible to relapse. And by understanding how the MR process works, you understand how transformational change works independently of any particular techniques. And that's a very strong position for a therapist to be in. Because then this universal core process becomes your steady focus. Mm. And from that base, from that position, you choose techniques from any system that you know that seem most suitable for carrying out that process for a particular problem for a particular client. Um, you know, I think I can best explain the core process with a case example. Would that yes, be okay? Please. please, that's preferred. All right. Okay, good. I'll do that. <clears throat> um, but uh, let's see. First, I really should explain. Well, I mentioned this earlier, but I need to really emphasize that MR is a very general and very flexible mechanism of the brain for modifying the contents of memory. And there are many different types of memory and many different types of modification of those different types of memory by MR. Uh, for example, there is spatial memory, object visual recognition memory, uh, memory of dance steps, mm -hmm. and, and smell memory, and many others, right? Every different aspect of what we experience has its own memory system in the brain, amazingly. Yeah. For our purposes here, psychotherapy, the most important type of memory is memory of uh, core beliefs or schemas or mental models that were formed in emotionally intense experiences. They are learned patterns of how the world works. And they don't exist in, these schemas don't exist in words, and they operate from outside of awareness. And I often refer to them as simply as emotional learnings. That memory of the world's patterns and qualities is called semantic memory by researchers. Now, so as I mentioned, MR is a very general mechanism. It can strengthen a belief or schema held in memory. It can weaken it. It can alter its details. It can add something new to it that modifies it. So using MR to produce profound unlearning is a special case of MR and a particular process of MR. But it's the most important form of MR for psychotherapy mm. because unlearning produces transformational change, which is the most effective outcome of therapy. So here is a case example that shows the MR process of unlearning. The client I'm going to use for this case example is a man in his mid-40s. Uh, I'll call him Gary. He said he had come to see me because for his whole adult life, uh, when he's among people, he usually feels very tense and very tight, and he goes into being shut down. He sort of locks up and is unable to think or speak or flow conversationally. 
And this was very embarrassing for him. And he said it clearly made others feel awkward uh, with him and want to avoid him. And so I asked him if this, if being in that state felt like anxiety. And he said in response, I guess so, which told me that he was not directly aware of his affect. He was only aware of the somatic tenseness and the behavior. So then I worked to reveal the underlying emotional learning that was generating this state because it's the underlying emotional learning that will be the target of change. So I need to reveal and learn what that is so that I can efficiently use the MR process on it then. In other words, the overall strategy I'm following is simply find the emotional learning that generates the client's symptom, in this case, his locked up state, and then guide the unlearning of that emotional learning through the MR process. That's it. In the most simple haiku way I can say it, that is the guiding methodology for therapists who want to use this knowledge. Uh, and that strategy definitely defines the methodology of coherence therapy, which is what I'm doing in this example. And then, and then later we'll, we'll bring it over to EMDR. Yeah. yeah. So again, okay, now I'm, I'm aiming to find this on the, the underlying emotional learning that creates that state for him. And to find it, I, the first thing I did was ask him to bring to mind a recent good example of going into that state uh, and be back in that scene. Mm -hmm subjectively as we examine his experience. Well, it was a co-worker's dinner party recently. And in that scene, I guided him first to notice how his body feels. And then I said, is this a feeling of unsafety? Like, like something really bad could happen. And he thought for a moment and he said, yeah, it is. And the surprise in his voice told me that this too was new awareness. Then I said, well, okay, are you ready to find out what's not safe for you in this situation? And he said, yes. So I said, okay, I'm going to say half a sentence. And then you say it and just let your mind finish the sentence according to the unsafety that you're feeling without any pre-thinking. Okay, you ready? Here it is. I better not talk freely to any people here because if I did, just go ahead, say that, hit the blank, what comes? And he did that. And in response to that sentence completion exercise, which is you know one of the very basic techniques we teach to bring these implicit emotional learnings out, right? Because an implicit schema, even though it's outside of awareness, has never been in awareness, they can't resist completing a relevant sentence. Yeah. And they start to reveal themselves. Well, Gary said, what comes, okay, I'll say again the sentence, the, the half sentence. I better not talk freely to any people here, because if I did, Gary said, what comes isn't words. It's an image of my father exploding with rage. Mm. And then he told me about a childhood in which unexpected blasts of rage and shaming denigration from his father were very frequent. 
his father would bellow, how can you be so stupid over the smallest little mistake that little Gary would make, like, you know, an arithmetic error or spilling some milk. And this often ha happened, uh, often happened in front of uh, visiting family members or friends. So it, you know, it was just searingly shameful, shaming for him. Uh, but no one ever came to his defense or, or objected to dad for ripping into him like that. So I asked him, well, then what did it mean to you that no one ever came to your defense? And he stared at the carpet. This was back when I was still doing in-person therapy sessions. He stared at the carpet for a few seconds and then said, well, I never thought about that before, but it meant dad was right about me and everybody knew it. So there you see, you know, close up how a little child learns low self-worth by believing the incoming negative messages about himself. So for about 15 minutes, I gently guided Gary to revisit his emotional experience under his father's blasts of rage. And he was able initially to access some initial bit of the terror and the raw pain and deep shame that he would be immersed in. Just going gingerly here. That's very in, intense stuff. <clears throat> I had him picture little Gary uh, feeling all of that. I did some inner child work with him. And, and um, I, he, he said he wanted to scoop up little Gary and hold him. And I said, go ahead, do that. He needs that. By the end of the first session, he was in touch with his emotional learning. And we, we, we crafted a sentence to really capture what that learning was as he feels it. So he's in it, feeling it, and putting words on it with me, right? This isn't speculation. This is readout of emotional truth. And here's the wording we came to. Dad is right to be that mad at me and scream at me. And everyone sees and agrees that I'm too stupid to be accepted or loved. I'll always be humiliated and rejected by people for doing or saying anything wrong. Doing or saying anything around people is dangerous. Hmm. Right? That's it. There we have it. Uh, notice especially the generalization of dad to all people. That's very important to notice. I've learned to really uh, spot that quickly because that expectation that all people will respond the same as dad is what generates his social anxiety in the present. So this isn't past stuff. This is carried in the present and applied self-protectively. This is adaptive learning. This isn't dysfunction. This isn't maladaptive. The, the, we know from neuroscience that emotional learnings are supposed to stay the same forever. They're not supposed to fade out. So th therapists and researchers and theorists who call this stuff maladaptive and uh, pathogenic and disordered, disordered, yes, key word, are really misrepresenting the operation of the emotional learning and memory system. This is the proper functioning of the emotional learning and memory system. And yes, it causes us, causes us endless trouble. We are prisoners of childhood because mm. of how evolution shaped 
the emotional learning and memory system, but it's not misfunctioning. Right. Okay, Bruce, I have to pause because this this is a really key point in the EDR community because this is one of my main critiques personally (laughs) of the original text that we're all given to read about EMDR is the, the emphasis on the maladaptive nature. Yes. of these memories. And and every time I encounter that phrase, it's like, I want to nuance that, right? Like, yes, it's maladaptive in the sense that it creates struggle and pain and distress in the present. But from an evolutionary perspective, from a survival perspective, from our body's perspective, this is incredibly adaptive. And, and I think that we miss some things in terms of how best to treat when we, you know, blanket state that this is maladaptive. We're, we're missing yes. some, some key features of how to actually work with this. Um, anyway, I, I just wanted to say yes, like, that, thank you. that's an embedded uh, struggle that we have in the EMDR community because it's all over the original literature. Yes, I know. It's all over the whole therapy field. <laughs> yeah. And to further your point, Bruce, about the the emotional learning needing to maintain its its intensity when an emotional learning loses its vividity in our visceral representation of the world around us it makes us more susceptible to life threat if we forgot yes. something that we learned to shield us from something so painful we would be walking around being devastatingly wounded yes. around every corner yeah yes exactly it's clearly survival positive in the course yes. of evolution, for emotional learnings to stay full strength forever. Yes. And really, until memory reconsolidation was discovered in the 1997 to 2000 period, it looked like the brain had no mechanism for unlearning, unlearning. and erasing an emotional learning. A hun- nearly a century of extinction research never eliminated the target learning. It only suppressed it temporarily, and the target learning would reemerge and dominate again over time. One of the papers that I wrote in my undergraduate experience with this framework in mind was a critique of the behaviorist tradition and conditioning learning as a competition instead of an erasure. Um, So that, again, is just such a beautiful point that I want I just want to go so far into but I want to go back to the case example just for just a second if we could because yeah. you illustrated so beautifully how to get to the core of the emotional learning and I feel this in consultation with other clinicians around EMDR where they're like you know I float back into the memory that I feel is the keystone or touchstone memory and then what do I do do with it. So I'd love to hear yes. from your perspective, once you identified yes. that with Gary, how did you set up the disconfirming experience potential and carry through yes. the session? Great. Exactly. Uh, so let's go to that. Yes. And you know, when therapists view the underlying emotional learning or schema as maladaptive or pathogenic, that inclines them to try to stay away from it, try to get the client away from it and out of its grip. That is exactly the wrong thing to do for the MR process. Yes. So as we'll see, as I continue with the story of Gary, um, let's see. Well, I went into our next session having, you know, having found that underlying emotional learning and emotional truth or schema 
I went into the next session figuring, well, you know, having in mind, okay, how do we find disconfirmation of that? How do we find something that's real to Gary that shows his emotional learning system? Wait a minute. That generalization isn't true because that's what's needed, as we'll see. Now, I figured, though though Gary expects all people to react to him the same as dad would do, actually, I know that most people are not the same as dad. So it would probably be easy for me to guide Gary to find in his life, his own life experience of over 40 years, past experiences that contradict his learned expectation of how people will respond. So this is one of many different techniques for finding contradictory knowledge once you know what the schema is made of. And this also shows why it's so important to do very good, thorough discovery work of the schema. Because the disconfirmation must be very specific to the contents of the schema. That's crucially important. You don't just find something positive to make the client experience while they're experiencing the generally negative schema. That will not disconfirm the schema. Say the it, Bruce. Emotional... <laughs> okay. Okay. Hey, we're going into call and response here now. <laughs> Wonderful. We, we have um, that bringings. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, the emotional brain is very conservative. It will not unlearn and decommission one of these schemas unless the disconfirmation is unmistakably specific to the schema. Right? So that's why we say slower is better. Slower is faster. Sorry. When we teach this, slower is faster in doing the discovery work. Make it very thorough. Get very familiar with the specific makeup of the schema. So here, the most crucial piece of the schema is the generalization, expecting everybody else to be the same as dad. So one of our many techniques for finding contradictory knowledge is very simple. We call it the, the past opposite experiences technique. So I came into the session with a, with a schema that's about a generalization. Past opposite experiences is very highly or likely to be successful because life isn't monolithic like that. But according to the schema, it is. It's a, it's a spell. It's a delusion. It makes life. You know that, that phrase that goes around, whatever you believe, life looks like it confirms it? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's so true. So... I said to Gary, after checking with him, you know, we reviewed the schema. We read the words again. And he said, yep, that's it. And that really feels true, still does. Because awareness alone does not change these things. So then I said, in certain, beginning the search for a contradiction, a, a disconfirmation, I, I said, tell me something. Have you ever visibly made a mistake or done something wrong? And the other person didn't react in an angry, rejecting way like dad always did. So, you know, I'm simply asking him to remember experiences where the world uh, did not behave according to the schema. Um, uh, He said, well, yeah, now that you mention it, see, once a generalization schema is conscious, this had never been conscious before, but once it is conscious, Past opposite experiences will pop to mind easily when you simply ask for them. Gary now remembered several clear instances 
and he listed them for me in, in a factual manner. There was no big emotional experience yet. The significance of this had not registered yet, but you'll see in a minute how I got it to register. He listed these things, named them. I wrote them down, everyone, because I'm, I'm equipping myself, right? Um, <clears throat> so once I had that list, then I said, okay, now let's go over some things that we know about your life experiences of making mistakes. And, you know, it would be good, Gary, if you could let yourself feel these things as we review them to whatever degree you can. On one side is all those many times when dad became so angry and rejecting over some mistake you made in front of family members. And that was so painful and scary and shaming for you. And because of all that, you've really expected that most everyone else would also reject you harshly and, and, and see that you're too stupid to be accepted or loved for any mistake you make. Can you feel that expectation toward everyone? And again, he was gazing at the floor as he listened, and he nodded, yes, yes, he can feel it. Good. So that reactivation of the target learning is the crucial first step of the MR process yes. for unlearning and transformational change. You see how we're, we're staying close to the, 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 the cause of all the trouble, the target learning. I'm and not just see. staying close, but very clearly identifying the emergent affect. That to me yes. is so He's essential. You have to feel it. Yes. Yeah. That's it. That's it. We deliberately reactivate it, get the client subjectively immersed in it, speaking from it and in mm -hmm. it, not speaking about it. Yes. This isn't cognitive insight. This is very experiential process. Yeah. So he's in it and it's reactivated and it's feeling real to him subjectively. Great. That's step one. Then I did the crucial second step by saying, okay, and on the other side, what you have actually experienced is all sorts of people who remain friendly and relaxed when they see that you've made a mistake. The store clerk was friendly and relaxed when you returned the book because you bought the wrong one. Your coworker was friendly and relaxed just last week about your mistake of sending him the April figures when he had asked for the May figures. Your 12th grade teacher was friendly and relaxed about the mistake you made about the structure of the final paper. And your college advisor was friendly and relaxed about your mistake over the materials he needed from you. All these people have been so different from dad. Can you feel that? And again, he nodded. That completed the second step, creating a juxtaposition of the target learning's expectation with his own observation that people do not respond as expected. Remember the title of that 2004 article? Mm -hmm. What's expected. It's exactly that, the mismatch between what's expected and what's actually experienced and perceived. What's so curious, I think, and important for therapists to recognize here in the therapy context is that Garapy, Garapy, Gary and Garapy is Garapy now, apparently. Um, um, Gary was in possession all along of these disconfirmations, but they were held in a very different, separate memory network. The two never came together in conscious juxtaposition. 
And that's true of about half of clients in our experience. About half the time, the person is already in possession of exactly what's needed to potently disconfirm and unlearn the target schema. Mm-hmm. When it, when the, when the, and in the other half of the time, you have to use other techniques to find or create the contradictory knowledge. And like I said, we have a whole array of, of specific techniques for doing that. But here I had brought Gary into that crucial mismatch, uh, or as researchers call it, prediction error. Mm-hmm. This first moments of experience of that mismatch or prediction error, very specific contradiction of what the target schema expects, the brain does something remarkable very quickly in response to that. The neural encoding of the target schema very rapidly is biochemically changed from the locked stable state that it normally has in long-term memory into an unlocked, destabilized state that is now open to being rewritten by this disconfirmation of what was originally learned. Uh, And this, this first sudden encounter with the mismatch that does that unlocking or destabilization, this is the launching of the MR process. Yeah, I want to... The MR process begins with this. I want to zoom into that experience because for so many this isn't the end of the process you know this is not where it, okay you're done like your your emotional learning's been destabilized and you're good now it becomes open to change i want to highlight that phrase that you used because it's as if now there's an incongruence between the emotional learning and the cognitive schema that it provided for the world and now this remembered previously inaccessible contradictory experience it's it's like the memory network saying like oh i actually don't know now what to make of the world around me i'm i'm curious i'm more open than i've ever been i don't know i don't have the confidence in the world treating me the way that i thought it would once exactly exactly the very first moments of this juxtaposition uh the the emotional brain is going uh, Wait, wait a minute. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I thought that was real, but, but wait a minute. Okay. So the change hasn't happened yet from the first moment, but the unlocking, the destabilization is happening. It's on the table now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. In the, in the lab research with either mice or people, um, if you do, uh, like they usually use Pavlovian conditioning, mm-hmm. the very first human study showing this. Uh, in 2010, the first successful erasure of an emotion of an acquired emotional response with humans uh, was a conditioned response where the person sees a yellow triangle show up on a computer screen and has learned that a, a, a wrist shock, an electric shock, will come. That's the creation of the emotional learning, the expectation mm-hmm. that yellow yellow triangle or yellow square, whatever it was, means. Shock is coming, and so the body feels fear. Expected reinforcement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then when they do the mismatch phase, a day later after that learning is created, the the yellow square is presented, and then there's no shock. And so that's the moment where the emotional brain goes, wait, wait a minute. There's supposed to be a shock. Is this true or not? And that unlocks the circuit, but has not yet driven the unlearning. 
If you don't do anything else, the unlearning will not happen from that first mismatch. So then what they do is they, they in, in, in the lab studies, they wait 10 minutes and they wound up thinking that 10 minutes was crucial. Turns out it's, that's not intrinsic to how MR works. And there's a mess going on there in the research. But yes, uh, they wait 10 minutes. Then they do a series of yellow squares with no shocks. In other words, repeating the mismatch a few times, that does the unlearning and results in the disappearance of the expectation. So here with Gary, in therapy, we do the same thing. After the first juxtaposition, we make sure to repeat that juxtaposition a few more times during the rest of the session. And the way I usually do that is very simple, very natural. Hey, the juxtaposition is fascinating to the client. This wait a minute, this whoa, what seemed to be reality actually somehow isn't. And the client isn't taking the therapist's word for it, right? This is Gary's own series of life experiences. This is real to him. And that's crucial. The disconfirming knowledge or experiences must be subjectively real to the client, not something the therapist is pointing out or psychoeducating. Occasionally, psychoeducation can light up and become real. I think we've all seen that with some clients. Boom, the client owns it as real. But very often, it just goes up into the head. It's just a factoid, like a positive thinking that the client is trying to make real. But, you know, really, it's not real. It's just a, a lightweight, superficial thing. So this is real to Gary. Uh, he's registering uh, what I just uh, said to him that set up the juxtaposition. Uh, he's, he's in touch with both at once. That's the key thing. He's in touch with both at once. Everyone will respond to me like dad for every mistake. And at the same time, he's in touch with no one has reacted to my mistakes like dad did. People stay relaxed and friendly to me. So I waited about 10 seconds, letting that begin to register. And then I asked him, uh, and this was just my beginning to repeat, just to create repetitions of the juxtaposition, simply through uh, calling attention to it again, empathizing with it, staying right there. I said, well, okay, from being in touch with both sides like that, what are you experiencing? What do you notice? And really, just my saying from being in touch with both sides like that, he's having a, a repeated first dose of it inside. What are you experiencing? What do you notice? He said, um, I'm feeling surprised and sort of relieved. So that told me it's registering. The mismatch is subjectively registering. Very important to check that. And so synapses are now unlocking, presumably, mm -hmm. very quickly. And then I just kept naturally empathizing, you know, uh, as we sat there, I said, wow, Gary, all your life, you've had that deep old expectation that anyone's going to go off on you like dad in response to any mistake. And yet here are all of your own observations again and again, that people don't react like dad to a mistake. Um, and you're having this feeling of surprise and, and it's a relief. Uh, and we just hovered with that. And the client is very happy to hover with that and keep saying it in different ways. It's so amazing. And, it's, you know, it's very actively. I've had some clients where um, they feel uh, energy rushing through their body. 
One, one woman's head fell back on the top of the chair and her eyes were darting around. And she said, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling streams of energy. Uh, I'm feeling the space between my toes. Mm. I mean, sometimes really major somatic effects happen. I've had several clients who said, I can feel wiggly sensations in my brain. Yeah. I can feel my brain at rapid speed reprocessing dozens of different memories. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a palpable experience sometimes with some people, not always. Um, in his next session, oh, uh, well, I, I, as a between session task or, or exercise process, you know, I, I, I wrote out the juxtaposition for him in, in just the way I simply reviewed it so we could really be with that very clearly every day and he did that, and in his next session, he described a major easing of his shutting down response in sessions with people, uh, uh, in situations with people. But he said this, and this is this is typical. The this big change of reality doesn't always go completely comfortably or smoothly, even though it's a welcome change of reality. He said this. He said, you know, this wasn't exactly a walk in the park because, well, if everybody isn't like that, if most people aren't like that, now dad looks really mean. Now I feel like I have this cruel father and I've been pretty agitated about that. You see what's happening? When the scheme of driving the symptom stops feeling true, well, of course, it's a relief, but it can bring new knowings that are distressing in their own ways and require sometimes extensive it processing. Does. Yeah. Often, often does. If he believes that everybody reacts like dad, then dad's a normal guy. Yeah. Yes. It shields the attachment figure from yes. the degree of yeah harm. And that's what the self-blame of a child is largely for. Absolutely. It's unconsciously purposefully self-protective from even worse experience that comes if you know the parents being abusive. And that's why yes. it's adaptive. That's what makes that's that original it. emotional learning adaptive rather than maladaptive. Exactly. It's only, exactly. only the context that we can then say now, just because they're an adult in an adult-sized body, is that maladaptive. But at the time, it was perfect protection. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, within coherence therapy, we describe this by calling it the two sufferings. Mm, yeah, The suffering that comes from having the symptom compared to the suffering that is that really comes from not having the symptom. And the suffering that comes without the symptom is subjectively worse. Yes. That's why the symptom exists. It's the emotional mind's choice of the lesser suffering. Yes, it's still a suffering. A child doesn't like believing it's my fault. I'm unlovable. People don't resort to their adaptive functional symptom because they like it. It's because it's the lesser suffering. But there's no conscious recognition of that whatsoever. So consciously, people use conventional notions uh, to make sense of their symptoms and think they are bad, sick, stupid, or crazy. Yeah. Yeah, these are your pro-symptom beliefs. Mm -hmm. We've talked about these in all of our trainings as well. Um, The utility of the pro-symptom belief is to insulate the fragility of the self without the rationalization or the understanding. Yes, Yes, exactly, exactly. Having the symptom 
uh, avoid something even worse. Yeah, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, like, in, imagining this situation with Gary, what I would anticipate just conceptually is that the second suffering is some mixture of rage and grief, right? And this whole reorientation towards the way that he understands his relationship with his father and what it means to have a father like that. In that second suffering, though, I'm curious if you experience um, a kind of revitalization for the client where, where while it's incredibly painful, there's more truth and aliveness to the work than than the original. It's like something is now available to them um, because the, the story is more true to their body. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. No, it more than makes sense. Yeah. That's a very important point. And we... We, yeah, we often emphasize that. You put it so beautifully, though, uh, Melissa, just beautifully, really. Uh, yes, that's exactly it. The client is in touch with their own lived truth. Yeah. Um, some In some uh, frameworks of therapy, this is described as recovering coherent narrative. Yeah. Right? This is the lived truth of their experience that they've pushed away from conscious knowing. And in retrieving it, they feel much more connected to self yeah. and they're really grounding in their own emotional truth of life and, and what they've experienced. Yeah. And it does bring, uh, I, I've had clients who say, uh, in fact, there's one, yeah, one of our uh, videos available on our, yeah, the one called down. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. What is it? Um, Oh, a stump with humble roots. Yeah, right in the middle of the session, as she's getting in touch with this painful stuff of realizing that her mother's rage was traumatizing her all along in a way she had never faced. Um, and a, and a, the, 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 in the middle of the session, the, she shuts down and the work is blocked by heavy resistance. Mm-hmm. And we have to get through the resistance. And the resistance turns out to be that if she lets herself know this, this, ter- this painful grief comes. Yeah. And she managed to tolerate that right in the session, allows the grief. And as she's accepting the grief, before we even return to the main track, she says, you know, this is so painful. But her word for it was, she said, this feels so wholesome. Yeah. Mm. Wholesome. To let myself know this and feel this, really returning to herself. Uh, So, yes, that's exactly it. In somatics, we, we use the word vitality. It, it's yes. they they get in touch again with their life force, right? The yes. thing that was blocked uh, absolutely by the, by the original strategy. Suddenly, you know, the river is flowing again, and while it's yes. overwhelming and feels like a tsunami of emotions, sometimes that um, the wholesomeness. Yes. I there's this sensation of almost like purification. It's like things mm. washed through and released, and they yes. can feel that it's healing, even though it's painful. Um, yes, and and I don't want to minimize the overwhelm, and sometimes we have to go slow yes. with it because it's a lot. But there's something so profound and powerful when that begins to happen. It's like the person's body is partnering with them and with us to yes. make this happen now in a way that it couldn't before. So, anyway, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, there's a wonderful quote. It's an epigram on one of our book's chapters, Unlocking the Emotional Brain. A quote by, oh my God, I'm I'm blocking his name. Who's that American Revolutionary War writer who wrote these amazing things at that time and many quotes of him? One of his quotes is, the nature of truth that all it requires is the liberty of appearing. Mm. 
I just love that. I feel like you're, what you're describing so beautifully, Melissa, is, is that allowing one's truth to appear has these vitalizing, empowering effects, purifying, wholesome, all these words uh, are, are what the client really feels. In the midst of the pain or grief of it, they know that this is so good and so right. Right. Yes. Yes. And that helps him tolerate it. But with Gary, I did have to help him through a, 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 a sizable grief process in yeah. relation to his father and anger, both. And that took a few sessions. Yes. But uh, the unlearning and, and, and depotentiation of the schema had happened. Uh, as we were getting uh, finished with this anger and grief process, he looked at me and he shook his head sadly and he said, it wasn't me. I'm not stupid. It was him. He needed to see me as stupid so he could feel okay about himself. Yeah. And that freed him to be able to face and know this, right? Uh, even though it was so painful and it was such a loss of his image of his father. Yeah. I'm conscious of the time here and I want to just get into one more question maybe given our <laughs> the time we're taking with the questions is so beautiful but for EMDR therapists um, how can we use the MR process and the wisdom of all of this literature and all of these experiences to better you know help our clients with EMDR yeah good good uh, well, th there are three major ways that understanding this process, which consists of those three experiences, right? The reactivation of the target schema, the underlying emotional learning that's making the symptom necessary to have. Step two is the experience of a contradictory knowing, a disconfirmation concurrently creating the juxtaposition. And step three is a few repetitions of that juxtaposition. That's it. That's the core process that is universal, whatever techniques or system of therapy is used to create that, those experiences. So how does knowing that help EMDR practitioners become more consistent, more effective, reach that breakthrough more frequently in their sessions? There are three ways the understanding of that process, I think, uh, is applicable for EMDR practitioners. First, during the desensitization phase, elicit the underlying negative schema or mental model very thoroughly. Don't stop with just the first piece of it. Keep eliciting along all active channels until the schema is very fully explicit and clear because that material is the target of change. And as I mentioned earlier, specificity of disconfirmation is the key to effectiveness and success with this process. So you want to know the makeup of the target schema very specifically and thoroughly. So Bruce, I, I just want to say this in a slightly different way to make it really explicit. So you know, for EMDR practitioners, the target is not the specific memory in which the emotional learning occurred. The, it's not an event memory. That's right. It's not the event memory, but it is the the theme and the schema, what is held within that whole neural network of emotional learning. That is our target. While, right. while the explicit event memory may kind of be our door into that, it's not the point. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for spelling that out. Yes. Uh, 
event memory, episodic memory is very useful and important when the client has it. They don't always have it. Yeah. And they, you don't need it for this process. You can get to this. You don't need it because the schema, the, the pattern that the person learned from events is in the room. Hmm. It's in the client. It's right there at arm's reach. You just have to reach uh, and keep reaching until you bump into it and bring it out like I did with Gary. So you can get to the schema in any case. Event memory helps you get to the schema because, like you said, it's the portal through which the schema becomes apparent most easily. Yeah, this is a massive reframe from how so many are trained in EMDR to identify target memories, which if we're using this language is event memory. You know, what are these events that we're going after to try and unlock the distress that's placed there? But what we're talking about here is the emotional learning, the affective learning that happened in those various experiences, which are actually associative. It could be a series of things you're re-remembering as a part of that affect or that schema, but it's not necessarily bound to one event or one circumstance. Right, right. That's right. Um, and like I said, I've had clients who couldn't retrieve any any event memory at all, but we got the schema perfectly clear and vivid and alive. So yes, it's affective, but it's a mental model. It's a schema. It's a it's a it's a, it's a version of the world. It's a description of how the world functions. And by world, I include self or others. Or yes. there are existential schemas that are not about people or attachment, that are about how the world behaves, right? So get the schema very explicit and clear. Slower is faster on that. Second, the second way that understanding this process helps EMDR practitioners is <clears throat> then once you have the emotional learning or schema clearly defined, then design cognitive interweaves that pull disconfirmation into awareness. For example, suppose you were doing EMDR with that man, Gary, for his social anxiety. And his negative expectation of everybody responding the same as dad had just emerged. In order to find and evoke disconfirmation, you could then guide him with a cognitive interweave to hold in mind a sentence that strongly asserts that expectation in absolute terms. For example, okay, now hold, just hold this sentence, Gary. Everyone will always respond to my making a mistake just like dad always did. And then do the next set of bilaterals. His numerous experiences contradicting that assertion would then pop into awareness, guaranteed, right? Okay, so that, and there are many other ways to, to set up. Yeah, but that's uh, very different than most people are taught. <laughs> I know, <laughs> the, I know. The, the pulling away and the, the immediate rush to prove that they're yes. wrong, right? And yes. to disconfirm yes. through, um, you know, pointing out all the times where that wasn't true. But there, yes. so, and I, I'm going to go real fast with this. There, there's a body principle called the unlocking principle, where if you actually want to release a joint in the body, you move into the same thing. In right? Same thing. You know, in TMJ, you push in before you try to pull out. And this is 
so embedded in our body that uh, in order to, to unlock our natural healing mechanisms, we have to move into the pain and the pressure first, and then we naturally can move out more efficiently. Yeah, that's so, Damasio's so cool. social neuron yeah. theory. Like yeah. the way that the body heals is con- is consistent across systems yeah. and you know you know physiology. Yeah. It, that's just going to yes. work that way. <laughs> yes, uh, there's a wonderful quote of Carl Jung that says the same thing. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. How's that? Yes. Yeah. So exactly, exactly. Um, you don't want to be moving away from the material, even though it's the source of all the trouble. You want to be moving into it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you create. Uh, so um, let's see. So where were we? Creating the third point. Cognitive yeah. interweaves. That find the disconfirmation. Yeah. Good. Okay. So that was the second point. Yep. Third, third. Uh, once disconfirmation has emerged, uh, so this this third point is really where the points you both were just making uh, really apply. When you get the disconfirmation, do not use it to convince the client that the schema is wrong. If you do that, the client will go up into her or his head. Yeah. And it won't work. Yeah. Because the emotional brain knows the schema is true. Until it's unlearned, you've got to respect that. Yeah. So questions like, do you see that that's different than what you initially anticipated? Yes. Like those types of questions force you into that high you know, neocortical yes. thinking process that's just going to argue instead of yes. unlock. Yes. You're, you'll be switching to a counteractive process. You're yes. switching out of this transformational process if you do that. Um, similarly, I recommend never using any of those words like maladaptive or um, I know some EMDR practitioners refer to the 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 schema or the negative belief yeah. as a distortion, yeah. a distorted thought. A no, yeah. Nothing, nothing. You're you're simply putting the client in front of both at once, mm-hmm. with no judgments or indications about which is right. See, that's the hardest thing I think for many therapists to get the knack of. Yeah. It's nagging at your own pro-symptom beliefs. Yeah. Like it, it can pull you into that space of yes. saying, well, I don't know. You know, it just nags yes. at you like that. I love yes. that language. Yes. We call it the counteractive reflex. The therapist's yes. counteractive reflex. You know, culturally, all of us are deeply trained into counteracting. So true. Uh, on the most individual micro level and on the macro level of, you know, conquering nature and uh, counteracting. It runs through conventional thinking on all levels, and we're all deeply trained into the counteractive reflex. And that reflex has to be unlearned by the therapist to efficiently stick with this process and indicate nothing against the target learning. You're just putting the client in front of both at once. So the third point is when disconfirmation has emerged, then for the next set, Guide the client to hold in mind the juxtaposition, not just the disconfirmation. Yeah. I think this is the single most important input from memory reconsolidation 
to EMDR practitioners. The yeah. MR process is not the building up of the disconfirmation. It's the use of the disconfirmation to drive the profound unlearning of the original emotional learning. And that happens through the juxtaposition experience. Yeah, so this is where... Sets of, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, this is where the two-handed interweave to me is so important um, that I use so frequently. Almost every time I'm doing traditional EMDR you know, through the different phases, the two-handed interweave is the juxtaposition invitation for me mm-hmm. that I want you to feel and hold this first emotional learning in one hand and in the other, imagine this felt sense of difference, this, you know, and whatever I use the specific language for the client of what they're imagining, but for them yes. to then just guide their attention to holding both. Mm-hmm. And they'll sometimes squirm in the chair of like, what do you want me to do with it? Like, do you want me to see where they don't overlap? And it's like, no, <laughs> we're I not analyzing it. We're experiencing yeah. it. <laughs> I just want you to yes. hold them. Yes. Yes. Both seem true to you, maybe different parts of you, but both feel true. Just have both in mind. Well, and the challenge for the therapist to sit in the tension of the dissonance and not try to control the outcome of it, of it is such yes. a, um, a confrontation to our training and often a confrontation yes. to our own personal strategies of how to caretake because <laughs> it's a pattern. Yeah, it's a developmental skill yes. for sure. Yes. It is. It's it is. Tolerating that. And I think that that's a, a guidance for us as therapists to practice tolerating dissonance just in all areas of our life, in our own bodies and personal relationships yes. and certainly with clients that rushing to conclusion is where sometimes our interventions fall flat. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, very well said. Um, I remember in my development, it was only after seeing this process work beautifully, effectively enough times that I began to trust the client's mind to do the process, that I don't have to push it or force it or convince anything. I simply have to jockey the client into having both at once being felt and conscious. And and uh, Bridger, just like you said, the two-hand process, I often use my two hands yeah. to cue the client to understand what I'm inviting them to do. It's intuitive. It's just that way. It, it works very nicely. Yes. Yeah. And I love, you know, from the neurobiological side that they are held in the different hemispheres of the brain. And so as we get to work in that way, watching what's held in the right in in connection with the left, what's held in the left in connection with the right, once they start going with the bilateral, it is so amazing how consistent the affective impression of either hemisphere comes to address that emotional learning and the juxtaposition in the other hand. Yeah. And I think yes. doing it that way kind of preempts the the healing and, and the working through of that second wave of suffering as you described it, because it, it's a more honest representation. We're not jumping to a conclusion, but we're, we're really inviting the body to process all the reasons why it preferred this initial strategy. And so yes. I, I think it, it just produces something that is so much more organic and holistic in terms of uh, what their healing really can be rather than um, a quick change or something that uh, seems preferable but doesn't have the depth to it that we really can achieve. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. It's thrilling. Mm-hmm. I mean, How that's the works. an understatement. <laughs> it is. I mean, just revolutionizing. Um, 
Bruce, thank you so much for your time today. I'm conscious of the time and we might have to have you back for another episode. I don't know if you'd really? be open to yeah. that. <laughs> but uh-huh. There's so many more questions that we want to ask. Um, yes. Yes. But yes, thank you so lots much of, for your time. Fun we could have. Yes. That's right. About all the many ramifications of this. So many. Yes, the amplification. How, how it unifies the field, yes. Yes. how yeah. it is unifying for the therapist to be able to stay based in this process and see all the different systems as your your palette, yeah. your repertoire of options for different ways to carry out this core process. Right. Uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. We will include the link to coherencetherapy.org in our show notes. Is there anything nice. else that you would like for us to include with the episode? Just- the, uh, the mention with that link that uh, on the website is a two-hour webinar on memory reconsolidation for EMDR practitioners. Yes. Uh, it's new. It's a two-hour webinar uh, on demand, and it is um, uh, in the section of the webinar. It's the videos section yeah. of the of And the, learning uh, under learning resources. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That's yes. Wonderful. We will definitely include that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. Hey, this was a joy. Your the 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 depth and nuance of understanding and uh and and inspiration that both of you have has really been a joy for me to mm-hmm. to connect with you like this. Well, to say that the feeling is likewise is a massive understatement. <laughs> yeah, but to start crying, so <laughs> it it is just really enlivening, I think, you know, for all of us at our institute, but I think particularly for Bridger and I and a couple of others, like this line of thinking has been something that we've been tracking and just feeling so um, encouraged by for a long time because it really does have the makings of being an essential piece to a meta theory for missions that can have this unifying effect where we can converse with each other with a common language and a common understanding that's rooted in our body, that's rooted in what makes us all the same and is so essential to to what we're doing. And and that's a big uh, mission and vision of ours is to find these pieces of a unifying puzzle so that we can all talk to each other and understand what in the world we're trying to do because our work is hard enough without (laughs) so much division. Um, That's it. The unity of the field in our conceptualization and understanding of all this wisdom Uh, that's come before us. That's that's our whole mission as an organization. (laughs) That is music to my ears. Um, We are kindred spirits. Thank you so much for inviting me. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, this episode, uh, we will let you know when it posts. Um, But uh, I'm just so thankful. This has been such a treat. It certainly has. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yes. Well, we'll okay. be in touch, Bruce, and we'll we'll you know, send emails and things when all of it's going to come out. And if if you think of any resources or anything that you want us to include, just let us know, and we can tag it on. Okay. We'll we'll try to be thorough in our show notes. So. Thanks. Good. Good. Yeah. Maybe some. Maybe a link to some of the articles, like this 2022 yeah. mechanism article. Okay. Yes. Or, yes. Or one or two others you have. Yeah. That would be. That's it. I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll take Great. Care. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Take care. Be well. Bye for now. See ya. All right. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was the episode. That was the conversation. Was oh my gosh. It was absolutely. Um, oh, go ahead. So I, well, I just want to highlight and make sure that everybody heard that Bruce Ecker called us kindred spirits. 
This he feels said. very important to me. <laughs> I want to see that review on, on the website. Yes. <laughs> Quote, Bruce we're kindred spirits. Bruce Eckert. <laughs> this is oh, um, now going on my resume. That's and, right. I will uh, cherish it forever. <laughs> yeah, a lifetime achievement of mine. Uh, well, so, Bridget, like, after listening again to that conversation, what, what stands out to you? What did you walk away holding and ruminating and feeling about? Yeah. I think it was such a privilege to be able to talk to somebody that, again, we've been following his research and his team's research for a really long time and yeah. to finally talk to them about and, and almost like get them on the record mm-hmm. about the synthesis yeah. that we've been doing, you know, yeah. like here's what we're thinking about this and what do you think? And to hear also that, you know, there's just so many other brilliant researchers from all around the world that have been doing this and to hear not only that it's, it's being talked about, but that it's actually really supportive to therapists Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, who are practicing EMDR and other forms of resolution therapies, um, that this is a process that is organic to the human being. And that if faithfully and diligently and safely pursued can happen for theoretically everyone, like we can not only just treat symptoms, but treat them at the root, which is what mm-hmm. Bruce talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, the the three points that uh, we'll detail in the show notes as well, that uh, Bruce talked about the three points of here's how an EMDR therapist can be directly and immediately benefited by memory reconsolidation. That was just so supportive as well. It's what so about bold. you? Yeah. Um, well, okay. So I think the first thing is uh, his humanness just felt lovely. Um, yeah. I'm always so pleased. I have this experience a lot now where, you know, there's somebody that has been living in my mind for many years before I get to meet them embodied. <laughs> yes. When I do, it's just wonderful to encounter, um, openness, curiosity, humility. Um, and I am just so, oh, I don't know grateful. I think that's the right word. I feel incredibly grateful for academics and researchers and clinicians that are so willing to share openly. You know, that's a value of ours. And that's not a universal value in academia, (laughs) far from it. And so to encounter such openness and uh, willingness to be free with so much wisdom was just um, lovely to sit with for any length of time. Um, I think the other thing is it is invigorating to me to understand the mechanism behind what we're doing in a way that really feel like, feels like it invites us into more precision in our work and being able to experience so clearly what is happening, even when what is happening is kind of messy, <laughs> Yeah. Um, to, to not feel confused and to, to kind of be so situated in our work and be held by a deep foundation of understanding of the neurobiology of what's happening and how to partner with the body. Um, that just feels wonderful to me to feel like yeah. I can do this work and really be a partner to the natural organic ways that the body is trying to heal itself. Um, that's always been a bedrock piece of EMDR, but without understanding of what it actually was. And this feels like an answer to a question that I've held since I first encountered EMDR. So. Yeah. And I love, for me, I love also that we're putting it 
in the beginning of the season for Back mm-hmm. to the Basics as like, yeah. this is one of the first ideas that we're really talking about when it comes to what are the change mechanisms underlying EMDR yeah. as a therapeutic process. Yeah. Well, and I, I think what will happen, um, this is me foreshadowing, <laughs> is that <laughs> as we as we go back to the basics, it will be really obvious to us that then the next step is beyond the basics. Mm. And that beyond the basics is really about how do we release ourselves into a creative and artistic uh, process of EMDR based on memory reconsolidation. And I think that's what's so exciting to me is that more than anything, I want therapists to feel free to be creative in their work, but free in a way that is grounded (laughs) in something um, that is within what the body is trying to do and not just an idea that we had. <laughs> right. Um, because I think that there is some danger in just saying, yeah, do whatever you want. Um, and I want us grounded in something substantial, but something much less rigid and much more human and organic than a script. And I really mm. feel like what Bruce offered us here in this call and in his research is how to do that. And so yeah. um, I'm just so excited to go back to the basics and then beyond and explore what what can we do now with EMDR <laughs> now yeah, that we know I, more? I love that. And we're manifesting just for all of you to know, we're manifesting the a, a myriad of other interviews as well. Yeah. Um, so please like stay tuned. And if you have got some manifestation energy to spare, <laughs> like point it towards <laughs> point it towards some really great interviews for <laughs> notice that. Yeah. Yeah, because there are people that are going beyond the basics and just some really oh beautiful but so grounded uh, methods. And um, I feel like the universe has kind of provided <laughs> some names here lately, and I'm Ridiculous. I'm going to go see yeah. if they'll talk to us. So it doesn't uh, make any sense outside of that understanding. No, like no, no, yeah. it really doesn't. So. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you everyone uh, for listening, and we have really enjoyed getting to do even just the preliminary work on this back to the basic season. And I think where it's going to take us is somewhere that we're not even mm-hmm. we can't even imagine yet. So, thank you for joining us, and please share this with anyone who you know is interested in EMDR, because even if they've been practicing for a long time and love it, or maybe they don't love it, or they are just starting out, or they're a skeptic to EMDR, whatever, this is going to be, I think, the season that can really help uh, Mm. people feel included and able to join the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Take care, everyone. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.